You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 103. Today we're asking the question, should we be happy when our people speak out about safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a look at the evidence surrounding it. David, what paper do we have this week? Yeah, Drew, today I thought we'd do a paper, and we'll introduce it in a little while, but I guess as a I guess opportunity for listeners, it's an opportunity that I use and, and many of our listeners will hopefully be familiar with Google Scholar. But what Google Scholar allows you to do is uh, where authors create profiles, then you can actually follow those authors. So I got uh, hit in my inbox this week twice because I follow two of the authors uh, involved in this paper. So I thought, Drew, since it's a paper that was only published last month, it might be a good opportunity to to talk about it. And we're, we're sort of going to look at engineering, ethics, and broken organizations and and what all that means. And um, we're going to do that through the lens of the Boeing MCAS accidents and and everything that's been written around them over the last couple of years. So Drew, maybe before we introduce the paper, do you want to give a little bit of background to our listeners around these accidents themselves and and the MCAS system? And most will be across it at some level, but but maybe not in not in not in great detail. Yeah, sure, David. I never quite know how much people know about accidents. It's sort of like when you get really geeky about a subject, you don't know whether it's in the common like public domain or not. So I actually end up like writing a little almost disaster cast episode by way of introduction to this episode. So we're talking here about two separate but closely related accidents. Uh, Lion Air Flight 610 in October 2018 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 30 in 2019. So the Lion Air flight basically took off from Jakarta. 13 minutes later, it crashed into the Java Sea. It was the highest death toll of any 737 ever, dating right back to when the 737 was first introduced in the 1960s. That particular flight, there'd been issues on the plane on the flight beforehand. And so, you know, immediately attention sort of went to these malfunctioning sensors in particular, a sensor called the angle of attack, which basically tells you whether your plane is tipping up or tipping down. And another system that we'll talk about in a moment that that sensor feeds into called MCAS. But basically, David, my memory is that pretty much straight after the accident, people were just blaming the pilots. Um, and even during the investigation, when they found these failures, people were still thinking, oh, it's an Indonesian airline. Pilot training's not so good in Indonesia. They've, they've stuffed up. But then a very similar accident happened not that far later. They were still investigating the Lion Air flight, which happened in October, when the Ethiopian Airlines flight happened in March. Uh, This one left Addis Ababa, crashed six minutes after takeoff. And when they looked at the wreckage, one of the most immediate things that they found was that the horizontal stabilizer was screwed right into the maximum position possible. So it would have been pushing the plane into a dive and in fact, the plane dove into the ground. So we're not going to talk in great detail about these accidents and the investigation. But the important thing you need to know is that we've got this single sensor in both planes that malfunctioned, the angle of attack. It feeds into a system called MCAS, which relies on this single sensor. And as a result of this sensor, it's making incorrect adjustments to make the plane tip forward. Most of what the investigations have said is that this isn't like a automatically the plane's going to crash, but the plane is headed towards the ground. It creates a really, really high workload for the pilots. They have to do exactly the right things in exactly the right order, and they've got no guidance from the systems as to what that order is. So in both cases, the pilots weren't able to recover in the right time and height, and so the planes hit the ground before the pilots could recover. David, is there anything else you want to say about the accidents or should we talk a bit about MCAS? Yeah, let's talk about the MCAS system itself because then that feeds not feeds well into the paper around engineering and safety engineering particularly. Okay, so to understand MCAS, you need to understand the Boeing 737. I'd, I'd be pretty confident to say that m- most, if not all of our listeners, 
have it multiple times in their life flown on a 737. Um, it's the most common aircraft in the world. Um, and it's been around since 1967, um, which I looked this up, David. It's as old as the original series of Star Trek. Excellent, Drew. I've never, I've never watched Star Trek, so <laughs> I'll take your word for it. We've got to start a whole new podcast. Drew makes David watch Star Trek from start to finish. All right. I'm up for it. Okay. So, David, what you need to know about Star Trek <laughs> is that there's lots of different flavors of Star Trek. All right. Going from the very original to then next generation, and then they just keep reinventing on the same formula. And this is what they did with the Boeing. We're on a time limit. Oh, good. Okay. We're back to Boeing now. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we've got Boeing Original Series, Boeing Classic, Boeing Next Gen, Boeing Max. When they're up to the max, basically they're trying to keep the plane the same from the point of view of the pilots. But they also want to upgrade it so that it's got brand new engines, bigger engines, better fuel efficiency. And so the big new engines give the plane a different balance. They add in an electronic system to make the plane handle the same way as the previous plane. So this is what MCAS does, is it just sort of tweaks the plane so that it feels the same to the pilots. So you don't need to train the pilots to handle a different plane. Um, but in both accidents, instead of making these small tweaks, MCAS responded to the malfunctioning sensor and pushed the plane's nose right down. So David, I will go quickly. Backstory, how do you get to the point when you've got a system that just needs a single unreliable sensor to make that system do something dangerous? When you develop a new system for an aircraft, uh, one of the first safety things you do is you classify them according to their criticality. So if it's very new or very dangerous, it gets a higher classification. Higher classification means more scrutiny, more safety analysis. The regulator takes a closer look at it. You've got to submit more documents. If it's something that is relevant to the pilots, you've got to do more training for the pilots to, in how to handle that system. Now, when it, so there's a big urgency not to over-classify things because every time you classify something as critical, it incurs all of these extra costs. Some of those costs go directly to Boeing. Some of them go to the customers, either because the aircraft is more expensive or they've got to do more training. In the case of the Max, they would have had to buy brand new simulators and train people to operate the simulators and then train the pilots using the simulators. And Boeing was trying to sell into markets where they don't have money for simulators and lots of pilot training. So Boeing decided but because MCAS is really just there to help the feel of the plane, it's not really to actually help recover from stalls or anything like that. It's not a critical system. Now, this kind of overlooks the fact that if MCAS fails, suddenly it does become a critical system because a failed MCAS can do really dangerous things. Um, you're supposed to classify systems not on what they're supposed to do, but what on they can do if they go wrong. Now, you've got to be really careful when you sort of like in hindsight try to judge what people should have classified something as. Because, of course, we've got the information that it failed dangerously. The engineers who were designing it don't have that information. But I think it's fairly non-controversial to say that given what MCAS was capable of doing, it should have been given a more critical classification. What's a bit more controversial and a bit more speculative is what would have happened if it had got that classification. So you should be really careful when people say, oh, they should have done a risk assessment. If they'd done the risk assessment, they would have found the problem, they would have fixed the problem, the accident would have happened. We know that most risk assessments aren't capable of doing that. But this is what the argument was made. And this is particularly the, in this episode, we're going to be talking about a whistleblower. And the whistleblower clearly believes this, that if they had done the extra analysis or done the extra scrutiny, then they would have identified and fixed MCAS. And you specifically, the claim is that a system that critical people would have looked at the single sensor and would have said, no, you can't have a single sensor feeding into a system that is dangerous. We've got to have multiple sensors. And they would have also looked at the pilot training and said, look, you've got a system like this. Pilots need to be given specific training on how to deal with it failing, instead of just you know, being given press releases on how to deal with a failed MCAS. So that's pretty much it for background, what you need to know about MCAS, the accidents. David, do you want to talk a little bit about the um, whistleblower? I might get you to do that, Drew. Um, you went and looked at the, the main source or, or went back into the main source article. And then we'll, um, we'll introduce the paper and, and get into it. Okay, so, so what this article is talking, going to be talking about is a particular engineer who came forward publicly pretty much after a lot of the main investigation. This guy's called Joe Jacobson. He worked for the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and he previously worked for Boeing. 
but he wasn't actually involved in the MCAD system. So he didn't design it, he didn't regulate it, and t- but he did get involved afterwards in some of the FAA response. So what happened is when he was retiring, he didn't just quietly retire. He sort of made public a letter that he wrote to the family of one of the victims, shopped it around to newspapers, and then went and gave interviews to lots of newspapers, which is a very atypical thing for an engineer to do. It's not an apology letter. He doesn't accept any personal responsibility for what happens, although he does sort of wish that he had been more aggressive early on in insisting that he was involved. And the letter doesn't really make any new details. It's just really his thoughts about what, how, how Boeing and FAA should respond going forward. But I think it's this letter that particularly prompted the attention of the authors of the paper we're looking at today, because it was yeah, a fairly unusual thing to do. And it was written with very, very moral overtones. It talks a lot about his sort of newfound faith in Christianity as a large part of the letter. And so he draws a direct connection between that and the act of whistleblowing. So, Drew, I'll introduce the paper now, and, and we've held out for a little while. And the authors of this paper are Sidney Decker, Mark Layson, and David Woods. Now, we've we've done, covered papers by both Sydney and and David before, and and I guess in relation to this article, Sydney's very interested in in second victim and you know the the moral aspects of safety management and also you know major major disasters. And David Woods has always been very interested in his cognitive systems engineering background in automation. And particularly these days, he's involved in very complex technology systems and, you know, he's written lots of papers on how to make automation a team player and, and, and how to manage um, complex technologies and, and automations. And Mark Layson is a, well, I, I don't know, Drew, if he's a PhD candidate at Charles Sturt University or he's already graduated from his PhD. So if you have Mark, congratulations. And his PhD was all about investigating the harm that arises from traumatic experiences. So Mark has been a police officer. He's a minister. He's been a chaplain in an ambulance service. And he's really looking at ways that we actually think about healing moral injuries and moral distress in people. So I guess from, from his perspective on this paper, um, Joe Jacobson felt, you know, quite a moral injury. And I guess the FAA employees and many of the Boeing employees probably felt quite, quite a moral injury as a result of the incidents themselves and their own actions or, or potential inactions. But the title of the paper, Drew, is called Repentance as Rebuke, Portrayal and Moral Injury in Safety Engineering. Uh, it was published um, October, oh, was it? Oh, October 2022, I think, um, just recently. Well, I've written 2021 here, Drew, but I'm, I'm hoping that it was actually 2022. I've, yeah, definitely 2022. There you go. Typo. We do make mistakes. And it was published in the Journal of Science and Engineering Ethics. So haven't uh, not that familiar with this journal, Drew, but um, it sounds like from at least the the citations inside this paper that this journal writes heavily in in uh, in the ethics of engineering. Uh, yes, and this this is part of basically a series of articles appearing in that journal about the seven three seven Max situation. So, Drew, to kick us off, this repentance aspect of of the title of the paper. So, look, we've had discussion on the ethical implications of engineering for a long time. You know, NASA, you know, there's some famous quotes in, in NASA with the space shuttle incidents that, you know, engineers needed to take their engineering hat off and put their management hat on about balancing engineering needs and, and organizational and commercial needs. We know there's big debate about autonomous vehicles now, Drew, and the eth- ethical implications of the, the, the coding and the software used for autonomous vehicles. And obviously these more recent, um, Boeing 737 incidents. So the key call in, in lots of these incidents and, and issues is for more moral courage. So this idea that what we need is engineers who have greater courage to act on you know, their own moral convictions, which making sure that they strictly adhere to their code of ethics. We need to strengthen the voice of engineers within large organizations. And we need to just make sure that I guess engineers are always able to do you know, their best engineering work. Yes, and you sometimes see this uh, expressed as calls for this to sort of like feed into training of engineers. You know, engineers should be trained in ethics, should be trained in major accidents, and organisations should have structures that enable people to speak up and have whistleblowing policies. And we're seeing this quite a lot, Drew, and, and even in the safety profession itself, you know, and I was involved in the Australian Institute of Health and Safety publishing a, a chapter on ethics for safety professionals in the OHS body of knowledge. And, you know, it's this, this idea that actually when we've got professionals, um, inside organisations, they need to be able to speak up on matters in relation to their profession and be heard 
by the organisation. And so there's a there's an early comment here in this paper that, look, if we need to focus so heavily on moral courage uh, with professionals in organisations to simply just do their job, then there may be, or, or well, you know, the authors claim stronger than that, they say there is a major moral and systemic failure within those organisations that, you know, the remedy or the fix for that failure can't sustainably or reliably be just having more frontline moral heroism. So moral heroes. So, you know, so our organizations aren't going to be successful in the long term if they're broken enough to require heroes on the front line. Any other sort of thoughts around, around that argument, Drew? Cause I know you've been heavily involved in, in systems assurance and engineering and risk management and the research of all of that. No, nothing specifically, David. Just that, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later. This, there's this like curious framing of ethics that people tend to only talk about ethics when it goes badly wrong, which tends just like we tend to like blame accidents on human error. There's sort of like a tendency to push ethics down to that front line and to treat ethics as a last ditch defense rather than sort of recognizing the way it sort of permeates our whole approach to things like how do we regulate high hazard industries? And, you know, there are ethical things just in the approach in aviation of self-regulation, sort of like deciding that, you know, mostly it's up to the companies to manage safety and it's up to the regulators just to make sure that the companies are doing their job properly. You know, that's an ethical stance. You might agree or disagree with whether it's the right ethical approach, but, you know, there's ethics tightly bound in those choices. And the idea that we want these to be private companies that are accountable to shareholders and hold shareholders as their primary sort of stakeholders that's an ethical decision. Yeah, and there's contradictory professional ethics at play here as well that we'll also talk about when we talk about the organization's objectives because, you know, as a professional you're also, you know, you also want to support, you know, you're sort of ethically motivated to support the organization to achieve its objectives, which obviously there's engineering objectives and there's also cost and sales and, and other other objectives for the organization. So, yeah, ethics isn't as simple as just saying that, you know, the ethical code here is about things always being safe. David, there's something I really want to throw in here. This is not actually in the paper. And I think it's a failing of the paper because the authors of the paper aren't themselves engineers. They might never have actually had to take sign up to the engineer's code of ethics. One of the really interesting things about how ethics are framed for engineers is that it basically sort of like works like the law of, laws of robotics, which is another pop culture reference I'll have to explain to you sometime, that basically you pass each threshold so, you know, your number one duty is to the public, to the like, safety and well-being of the public. But the idea is you then pass that threshold, then your responsibility is to your employer. And so it treats this treatment of safety and welfare just almost as a binary yes, no thing. You know, so long as you're not doing something actively unethical, then your next responsibility is to the employer. So your engineering ethics doesn't necessarily help you with this complex mix between, you know, what is the interest of the public? What is the interest of your employer? As those two things become intertwined in how much money do you spend on safety? How many people do you appoint for safety? How strictly do you classify something encouraging greater regulation, slowing down the project? Your engineers are sort of taught to think in these binaries instead of complex trade-offs, particularly when it comes to ethics. Yeah, it's a good point, Drew. And so, so the next, this paper then goes into this section on moral injury and sort of defines it. And I guess it's this idea that when when an individual's ethical framework is sort of broadsided or broken by the actions of themselves or others. Um, now, this term has been around since the 1990s and it, and it sort of links heavily to, you know, betrayal of what is right. So if we feel like something that we've done or something someone else has done is a betrayal of what is right in a particular high stakes situation, in this case, the design and approval of aircraft, then, you know, we can have these moral injuries triggered by this either self-accusation or, you know, someone else's accusation of ourselves and suffer suffer this moral injury as a result. So, you know, this, this has been described. Uh, Sydney's already previously written a book um, titled Second Victim. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, there's this lasting maybe psychological, biological, behavioural, social or even spiritual impact of either perpetrating or failing to prevent or bearing witness to these acts that, you know, transgress our deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. So what what we're saying here in, in is this situation, you know, knowing what we know after these incidents and knowing 
you know, the engineers within both Boeing and the FAA, what they must have felt would have been this sort of double injury of, you know, actions of others as well as actions or inactions of, of themselves. The paper then goes into quite some deep philosophy and history here. Um, and I assume that's being driven from, from the contributions of, of Sydney Decker into kind of like, you know, betrayal as being this central theme as this ubiquitous human experience over the ages. So even some of our biblical stories and, and, you know, the original, you know, stories that we tell go back to, you know, someone's betrayal of someone else or someone, someone having done something in a situation that they, that they shouldn't have done or failed to prevent something. So Drew, this is not uncommon in, in safety either. I think this, this, this safety engineering reference is, is prominent, um, particularly in relation to NASA. Do you want to sort of give some reflection on, I guess, the Challenger incident specifically? Yes. So, so one of the things that we see a lot is after a major accident, you have these, I don't think whistleblower is quite the right term because they're usually not revealing new information, but they are sort of stepping outside of their defined roles where they wouldn't normally be permitted to speak by their organization. But they just decide to perform these like public acts of either self-accusation or accusing the company that they were part of as a way of trying to make up for the moral injury that they either they feel that they have let people down so they need to repent or they feel that their company has injured people and that they have been implicated and so they feel the need to you speak out against the betrayal of them by the company so one of, one of the big examples is the engineers who were involved in the challenger launch decision meetings now i don't want to go too deeply into this because i, I think their actual role in the lead up to the accident is quite mixed. And I think there is a bit of self-justification in some of the ways that they have tried to portray it afterwards. But it is certainly the case that from their point of view, they tried and failed to stop the launch. And so uh, particularly, uh, I'm going to make this of the name, Roger Boisjoli has spoken out a lot about the Challenger accident. Another one is... The engineer who was in charge of the Hyatt Regency project, which led to the Regency walkway collapse, he actually basically spoke out and said, look, this is on me. He was overseeing the project. He didn't actually make the drafting error or any of the design errors. But he basically said, you know, projects are supposed to have an engineer in charge to stop this. I didn't properly do my job as engineer in charge and spent a lot of the rest of his career trying to educate engineers about what it means to be the engineer in charge of a project and the need to take personal accountability and responsibility. Andrew, going back to the start of this episode about disaster literacy, for those who want to sort of look into the, both the Challenger and the Hyatt Regency project, there's uh, the back catalogue of Disaster Cast has uh, very good and interesting comprehensive episodes on, on both of those. If you can find it these days, David, I haven't been particularly maintaining the access to Disaster Cast. But the transcripts are still easy to find, at least. Oh, well, I think it's still on my um, podcast app, so sitting on the on the oh, interweb. That's why I'm still getting downloads on the interweb somewhere. Um, so then we go into this section. So we've got this sort of we, we we've sort of got this um this repentance, which is you know engineering done wrong. We need to support engineer engineers to speak up more. We know we've got these moral injuries that we need to you know understand and and help people with. And then we've got this sort of section in this paper called the humility and the hubris, and I guess. In here, Drew, it wasn't referenced, but you know, this section made me think of um, some work by Carl Weick and, and others on organizing for collective mindfulness, where he talks about this need to have both pro-social motivation and emotional ambivalence. And the way that they describe emotional ambivalence in, in that paper is that we need almost equal amounts of hope and fear. So we need to be equally, you know, in this language of this paper, humble to the extent that actually we may not know everything we need to know. We may not have covered all the risks that we need to cover. So we need to be quite cautious and quite open to exploring, testing, checking and understanding. And then the hubris side of thing is, but we can't be, we can't second guess every single thing we do because otherwise we'd never do anything. And so we need to have an equal amount of confidence that, well, actually, no, we do have experienced people involved. We have followed good processes. We do know what we're doing. And I guess, you know, Carl Weick, who's sort of been around since, involved since the start of HRO theory kind of says you almost need, well, they concluded that you need equal amounts of both. You know, one eye, 50% of you needs to be worried that you actually don't know everything. And the other 50% of you or the other eye needs to be, you know, confident that, you know, you can move forward knowing what you know. 
And I guess in this paper, they're, they're worried about overconfidence in, in engineering. So there's this idea that our technologies are actually quite unruly. You know, our technologies are less orderly, they're less real, rule bound, they're less controlled, they're less universally reliable than we think. Um, and technology involves lots and lots of uncertainty, lots of judgments, lots of assumptions. Even when we see these really nice and comprehensive designs, it masks the fact that there's a lot of hesitate to use the word guesswork, but maybe there is quite a lot of guesswork behind these seemingly very complete designs. David, there's a specific, really interesting thing that goes on with legacy systems. So one of the ways we try to convince ourselves that we've got this certainty is we keep something which has been very successful and has a long history, and we just make small tweaks to it. And we tell ourselves that because they're only small tweaks, they're not really new. It's not really a more complex system. It's just the old system with a little bit of change as if we're sort of borrowing all of the certainty and confidence. So the idea is that your 737 MAX isn't a brand new, highly complex system. It's the same thing we've been operating since the 1960s. And so we've got 70 years of confidence. And MCAS itself is a system designed to make the 737 MAX be just like the previous ones. So the idea is that, you know, it's almost like, you know, even admitting that this is a novel thing breaks our magic line of trust. Whereas in fact, you know, this isn't making it behave like the old thing. It's adding a whole new piece of technology that needed to be evaluated. Yeah. And the other side of the argument to that, I guess, is that, you know, you're changing the the size and the weight of engines. You're changing the load distribution of the aircraft. You're changing the aerodynamics and, and its flight handling. So pilots, you know, hop in the MAX as opposed to the other 737s and the plane responds completely differently. So you go, well, we'll just put this little... Um, this 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 design this software to to help smooth out the pilot's you know controls and and I guess Drew you know the story that you tell yourself with the change that you're making in these brownfield type environments of of you know this idea that the plane is more than the sum of its parts you know in any complex system as soon as we introduce something we may not know exactly how it's going to what the unanticipated or unintended consequences might be for the rest of the operation of the system. Yeah. Now, David, I want to be clear what we are and aren't saying here, because I mean, there are people who've just like come right out and said, oh, you Boeing was trying to hide the complexity of this and was trying to like avoid scrutiny from the regulator in order to save money. I think there is an equally plausible story that Boeing wanted to believe and the engineers wanted to believe that this was not a complex system, that this was not a big change. You, having your own work scrutinized by regulators is a pain. It adds no actual value to the design. It's just a whole lot of money and effort to have someone else check and tell you, yes, okay, here is your approval. Except in that one time out of 100 when the regulator comes back with a really, really good point. And no one believes they're that one time in 100. Everyone believes they're that 99 other times when this is just a cost add for no actual benefit to the design. Andrew, I think there's different stories that you can tell yourself here about this. And, and, and I don't claim to know, well, I don't think we claim to know anything about exactly what happened pre-events. But, you know, on one hand, you can see a very experienced engineering team that's been working with an aircraft for 55 years and knows a lot about that aircraft and, and how it operates. And it's been incredibly safe over its, its lifetime. And they're designing some software that's going to make minor adjustments to, to the feel and flight. And they classify it as hazardous rather than safety critical because they figure that at any point in time, the pilots can just turn the system off and fly the plane as they as they normally would. And they work through the designs and approval process like that, like you said, avoiding unnecessary testing in their minds, avoiding unnecessary scrutiny and moving forward. And then the other story you can tell yourself is you've got these senior managers who are incentivized to make things as profitable as possible and are standing over the shoulders of engineers telling them you know, to, to down classify things and, and ignore certain things. And I think the reality is, Drew, it, it, the reality of the first story for me seems a little bit more plausible than, than the second, but that's just my own assumptions of organizational life. So, so David, the, the argument that I know that Decker and Woods would both like to make, which I don't think, I don't think this is the paper where they're trying to make it. So I, I don't, I'm not like accusing them of failing to make their argument but I don't think the evidence or the theory is there yet. We've got these 
engineering rationalizations and decisions that I think the engineers are making as engineers, thinking that they're doing the right things appropriately. We've got the managers who are absolutely under stakeholder and shareholder pressure, have got really perverse incentives to cut budgets, cut regulation, cut the amount of training, get the product out. What we don't have is a clear mechanism for how one influences the other. You know, the engineers are not sitting there saying, let's make money for the CEO. They're not sitting there saying, oh, I want the shareholders to go away with a packet of money. But there are lots of ways in which the influence can trickle through. Uh, you know, things like the number of engineers, the timeline on your project. All of those things are going to create direct incentives for the engineers because they just have to do a manageable amount of work. Um, you know, they don't, you know, if you've got infinite time and plenty of spare staff, why not send it off to the regulator? You know, the rookie can handle that while the rest of us get on with someone else. But if there's no rookie there, if there's only you know, fewer people, you'd, the junior person who'd get that job got canned last week, then you got more incentive not to send it out. You got a limited budget. Again, you're worried about, will it get delayed if we do this? So there are plausible mechanisms. We just don't have evidence that that's actually what's going on. Yeah. And maybe, Drew, um, you and I are both supervising a, a PhD research project now from Russell McMullen that's hopefully going to get some answers in some of the links between some of these aspects and engineering decision-making in the real world. So we've had Russell on the podcast before talking about his master's thesis on safety engineering and design decisions. Yeah, I'm looking forward to whether he can sort of like build up some of that evidence of how sort of those mid-level in the organisation influences translate cost and budget pressures down to the decision-making level, to the engineering decision-making level. So Drew, we then go into a section on the decay and the disaster. So I guess, how did this all sort of play out in the design and approval process around this, this aircraft and all of these pressures, you know, on people to deliver, you know, a, a, you know, these changes to this aircraft in a way that we haven't spoken in detail about, but obviously you mentioned generally about there's a huge incentive to not have to retrain these pilots. And so, you know, can we just introduce this aircraft with our existing our existing pilot group and basically then not have to worry about which pilots on which plane at which point in time because if they're certified current on on the 737 they can just they can fly this aircraft so this pressure is really big in in the aviation sector and obviously clear um with airlines all around the world and even within the faa you know the faa i guess has a role here and you know like in the episode we did on the nuclear industry and risk assessments i think episode 101 uh, you know, I think sometimes we overestimate the role that the regulator plays in in the safety assurance of these these industries. Yeah, David, I have to say though, I don't buy at all the idea that this is erosion of a well working system. L let me just read out to you what the paper says. It says a U.S. Senate inquiry in the aftermath of the Max accidents found uh, dot 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 insufficient training, improper certification, FAA management acting favorably towards operators and management undermining of frontline inspectors. Anyone who knows anything about the history of the FAA knows that that has been like the entire life of accident investigation and uh, transport regulation in America. You know, I bet I can find almost exactly those same words in the um, you know, accidents in the 1960s. That's just the way the structure is always set up with regulators that have got like this joint responsibility for managing safety, but also fostering the industry that they're regulating. You always have this sort of like very difficult path that the regulator has to navigate. And I think in some, in some ways, my experience with regulators in other safety critical industries, I would say over the course of my career, Drew, that I have, I guess, at least, you know, my own opinion, unresearched opinion would be to see some, some form of decay in what's going on. And, and I think we see the rise in, like when I started my career, a job in government and a job in private enterprise weren't seen to be that disparate salaries. In, in many ways, when I started my career in government, my salary in government was far more. I, I mean, I went from a from a private enterprise role as a, in a safety role to a government safety role and doubled my salary at the start of my career. And I think over time, we've seen this loss of capability inside regulatory offices due to either the undesirability or the, uh, for a range of reasons, either people wanting to work in, in regulators or and maybe they've got a bit of an identity in a brand crisis or, you know, the remuneration offered for those roles within, within regulators as well. So this paper sort of says that regulators sometimes, you know, are lacking the technical capability. So they get into a, into a fight with a manufacturer who's got 
hundreds and thousands of engineers at their disposal and, and, and lawyers and a whole bunch of things. And it's almost an unfair fight between a regulator that's meant to have this, this legal powers and, you know, maybe the actual power residing in the regulation. Just to give an example without naming anyone, I was involved in an environmental approval process for the, um, for an energy company and the regulator was being very difficult with the environmental approvals process after the Macondo Gulf of Mexico incident. And the environmental department actually reported into the energy, energy and environment minister and very senior person in, in the organization just called the energy minister and said, you've got to tell your environmental regulator to calm down or we're never going to get this project done. Um, and all of a sudden that was approved within the next week. And so I only tell that story, Drew, to say that I actually think there are real problems in lots of regulators. And I think those problems have got worse over the last couple of decades. Yeah, no, no I would certainly concede that with respect to salaries for regulatory staff and uh, training and development opportunities for regulators. But I, I don't think that there's a perfect fix to it because particularly in something like aviation, where do you become an expert in designing aircraft as a regulator for the FAA? The only way you do that is to have previously worked for Boeing. <laughs> and so you know, your best, most experienced regulators, best, sorry, best, most experienced inspectors in the FAA are all ex-employees of the company that they are regulating. And so you're really reliant then on this like hero engineer model, you know, their personal integrity as engineers, as opposed to being captured by a system where you take for granted this legacy of, you know, they would have worked on the 737 in its earlier versions. They would have faith in it as a system. It, it makes it very difficult. And they would have relationships with people inside that organization and a sense of maybe trust, you know, unverified trust and, and also some very stale knowledge if you're out of an organization for two or three or five years, lots of assumptions about the way that organization functions and maybe some rose-colored glasses looking at that organization from the time that you were there and what, and what you think is going on within the organization. So, you know, we had this situation in, or it came out in a few of these reviews post Boeing, these incidents that the FAA was sort of like this quite militaristic chain of command. So, you know, low specialists could offer opinions, but otherwise it was, you know, up to the um, management of the FAA to decide what, what happens. And that's, that's true of all organizations. So we shouldn't criticize them too much for that. However, really felt like this idea of what I'm going to say is this idea of deference to expertise just didn't exist inside the regulator here and at least going on the the story of the individual by which this this paper's based he really felt that you know he had the most expertise of anyone and wasn't assigned to be involved in these events not only beforehand but even after the accidents that had occurred until he ended up in, in his own words inviting himself along to meetings that he wasn't actually invited to so so david should we talk a little bit about what solutions are available uh, what, the, what the paper calls the remedies? Yeah, so the remedies, it, it sort of starts with this, you know, so we've got this situation that we've sort of talked about through this through this episode here. So we've got these engineered systems that are constantly being updated. There's always this trade-off between the commercial pressures of organisations and um, engineering safety. We've got regulators overseeing this and we've got quite a complex system involving regulators and manufacturers and operators. And so one of the remedies which we called out at the very start of this episode is speak up. So really just trying to tell engineers to, you know, that you, there's an expectation that you're really knowledgeable in this system design. There's lots of pressures in the organization. We want to be safe. So you really need to speak up. And even when it feels like there's pressures to, for you to remain silent, we really want you to, to use your voice. You know, go against, you know, the, the dominant goals of the organization, like time schedules and profit, even though you might feel that the organization sees you as a traitor to the employee or to colleagues, you know, you sort of have to, have to speak up. And then the paper does a little bit to sort of say how, how maybe invalid that remedy might be. And the assumptions around, you know, what it takes to speak up are unlikely to be true. Yeah, it, it particularly suggests that um, you know, all of these things we do to try to encourage employee voice and get people to speak up are just signs of how difficult it is. You, whenever you have this whistleblower protection, you're admitting that whistleblowers are vulnerable and you, your ability to beef up a protection and an encouragement that can resist the power of the very organisation that employs someone is a little bit naive. 
But they, they go further and say that you know, engineers' identities tend to, um, much in the same way, David, that you discussed in your paper about safety professionals, engineers see themselves as belonging to a company, not to a profession when they're working. So it's not that they are sort of like resisting the goals of their employers. The goals of the employer become the goals of the engineers. And if you're a company making aircraft, your goal is make that aircraft, get that aircraft approved, get that aircraft flying. Your engineers working for uh, rocket companies you don't have as their goal, oh, I want to serve the profession. They want to put stuff into space. Yeah, and I think by very nature of the engineering profession, and I'm also not an engineer, Drew, but you know, I think engineers see themselves as very practical, solution-orientated problem solvers. And so you know, we can do this. We can work it out. We can make this happen. And, and that's also mentioned in this paper that, you know, what you're asking engineers to do is something very non-engineering, which is admit that this is wrong. We don't know what to do here. You know, we need to, we need to stop without knowing what, what comes next. And I guess the authors then sort of say that the FAA should have been the right place for this. If we can't expect people inside companies to put their jobs on the line and, and, you know, stand up to all this management power. We know that it doesn't end well for whistleblowers and professional engineering associations don't really do much. We've seen that play out in the media around the accounting function and major audit houses and the inability of the like the professional accounting associations to do anything about that um, or the unwillingness for them to do anything about that to their, their members. So I guess, I guess the authors say that the FAA is the right place for this, Drew. So you know the regulator really needs to understand that this is actually the way that organisations function. And the regulator should have processes to actually dig deeper for all of these approvals. And then maybe that's unfair as well, because regulators never have the resources that they need and, and can't possibly double check everything. David, I don't know if you are reading this the same as I am. What I'm hearing in the paper is they're almost suggesting that, quite apart from resources for the regulator, that regulators have the ability to have the sort of culture and engineering environment that is more aimed towards resisting rather than being captured by the goals of the industry. And I, th I thought I, that's actually a really interesting suggestion that you know, regulators could do a lot of cultural work within themselves because their engineers are not. You know, if it's true that engineers form their goals to match their own organisation, to conforming to rules, hierarchy, production goals, they get their job satisfaction identity from that, it is quite capable to have all of that but have it aligned towards the goal of a regulator trying to regulate. I think it would be very interesting to look at, you know, regulators, you know, doing some of that cultural work because you're true. If, you know, what is the primary objective or primary goal of a regulatory organization, particularly a safety regulatory organization, is to, you know, I guess do everything in its powers to assure, enable and assure the, the safety of the industry. And I've sort of looked at some of the identity and cultural work around things like policing departments, Drew, about, you know, some of, some of the priorities of some policing departments, like increased public trust in, in the police force and a whole bunch of interesting priorities and objectives for an organization that you'd never see in a commercial enterprise. So I think you could actually do something to try to shape the identity of the professionals inside a regulatory environment notwithstanding the fact that then the behaviours that you would drive would be seen as very, very resistant. You'd see a lot of behaviours play out then that industry will get quite upset with. Yeah, it's an interesting question whether a good regulator has to be an adversarial regulator, because I think there's got to be a middle ground between a regulator who sees their job as promoting the industry and also promoting safety versus a regulator who, at the other extreme who sees their job as like hindering and stopping industry from doing bad things, there's got to be a middle ground where they're just doing a professional job of ensuring that adequate scrutiny happens, regardless of the reputation, regardless of the history, regardless of the confidence the company has, they just fairly and impartially make sure that everything's been checked. I think process and transparency would, would help with that doing their professional job. Because I guess, you know, a regulator should never see itself as successful when industry is, is, you know, very satisfied with the, the partnership with the regulator. But I think if, if in this case, the FAA said, no, 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 we're not only going to scrutinize something that you mark as safety critical. We're going to scrutinize all, all changes. And this is the process through which we're going to scrutinize them. And this is the information that we need. And here are some, cause I mean, this, in this way, this is like just a single point failure. You know, this is almost like the most basic 
and I know a big assumption for me, not engineer, but this is one of the most basic things that you'd do if you did a HAZOP or some sort of process hazard analysis of any engineered system. Oh, here's a single point of failure. If this sensor shows the wrong reading, then this control system of the flight is going to take control. And therefore, any changes to software that have the ability to change in-flight controls automatically become safety critical system, safety critical change. So, so maybe there's actually more work that a regulator can do with procedure and transparency. David, as you know, I am, I'm the most hesitant person to say, oh, if we'd done a risk assessment, we would have caught this, or if we'd done the classification, we would have caught this. I cannot imagine setting this as a basic question in System Safety 101 and not having most of my class get it right. You're, you're right. It's a single sensor going into a system that's automatically suspect so long as you actually do the scrutiny in the first place. But that's the question is, I, I think that the how to classify this is where the mistake was made. It wasn't that someone failed to like do the analysis properly. It's they failed to recognize that this was the type of system that needed that type of analysis. And that is a more nuanced question that it's hard to know exactly what that looked like from the inside. And then knowing that you've got a system where, you know, the assumptions that get made in an, a classification then flow through to a whole bunch of actions and scrutiny that happen or, or, or doesn't happen is where I think, you know, again, to, to regulators is to do their role of regulator, a good engineering job as, as a regulator. I think, um, you know, the transparency of their processes and protocols and, and that could be, you know, could be a lot more detailed. I know industry actually finds that a little bit frustrating, particularly under safety case regimes, which is actually not knowing what the regulator wants to see and then finding it very difficult to know kind of like what, what information to provide. So, David, I just want to quickly mention here, because I think this is an important point. One of the reasons businesses hate it is those initial classification decisions are what drive the budget for the project. So the most annoying thing is you've like classified it as SIL2. You've done all your development, all your processes at SIL2. Regulator comes along and says, why was that classified at SIL2? You should have classified it at SIL3 and done all the SIL3 work. And so that's where the regulate, getting the right time for the regulator to review the decision matters. And it also requires regulators who have a lot of confidence in their own analytical abilities. And I think that's where what you were saying before about like pay and stuff matter, is the regulator has to believe that they're smarter than the engineer who made the decision. They have to believe that the engineer might've got it wrong and their opinion is better rather than thinking, I don't even understand this analysis. I'll give it a cursory scrutiny and let it pass. Excellent. Silly systems integrity level, think for safety integrity level for uh, non-systems engineers. It's not, not actually what they use in aviation, so I shouldn't have. That's okay. uh, they use DALs in aviation. <laughs> So then there's this idea about working, you know, working counter to the organization. This is what you said, Drew, about um, government should make this a little bit easier. And do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other examples outside of, outside of Boeing? And David, to be honest, I'm not quite sure where in our notes you're referring to. I might need to get you to take it. Just, I guess, the arrangements within NASA in the 1980s and, and you know, the situation that engineers were in in, in relation to the shuttle program. Yeah, so I guess this is where... That, that, that sort of mixed thing between organizational goals and your engineering decisions is you, you, you get more concerned by, oh, if I do this analysis and find a problem, it's going to delay the program because we've got to do more assurance. Then you get concerned about whether it's actually safe or not. And this, this happened a lot at NASA, particularly throughout the um, shuttle program, is the way the decisions were framed was as, you know, are we going to risk delaying the next part of the project? While in fact, they were dealing with quite sensitive safety issues. They should have been saying, you know, are we worried about the shuttle blowing up or the shuttle failing on launch? But yeah, you get, uh, so this is what Diane Vaughan sort of described as drift is the language then starts to change about how you're describing things and how you just get used to decisions that have already been made that you don't, you feel like a jerk if you're insisting on revisiting something that other people have said is closed and we've finished talking about it. Um, is that what you meant, David? Yeah, and I think the this idea, again, that organisational goals, goals come into it, that, um, you know, Dan Vaughan also said that engineers don't resist the organisational goals, which is like, you know, the space shuttle program was the engineering goal of, of the organisation. And so the engineers are using their technical skills in the interest of those goals, you know. And so, you know, speaking out is almost like saying that, you know, we're all failing here and we can't solve this can't solve this problem. So, you know, sort of 
goes on to say that, you know, maybe this is actually slightly ridiculous, this idea of speaking up on moral courage. So then, Drew, the final section of this paper is around, I guess, restating and deepening that argument to say that actually the remedy for all of this is not having people that speak up more because, you know, our systems are actually designed in a way that that's not going to be an effective solution. So there's there's sort of some some sort of detailed history on Boeing. It, it, it relocated and, you know, the, the express objective of the chief operating officer was to say that his objective was to run the run run Boeing like a business rather than a great engineering firm. So people want to invest in a company because they want to make money. And sort of that reorientation of Boeing going back, I guess, 10 to 15 years before the first one of these incidents occurs, which is kind of the time frame of the design of this equipment, is that we start record, rewarding the management team based on total shareholder return. We start looking at short-term business performance of the organization and we we sort of bias the organizational decisions and the management towards you know short-term commercial objectives and and shareholder returns. David, we've talked before about the importance of disaster literacy. I just want to point out that the CEO's public quote was basically saying to his own organization, take your engineering hat off and put your manager's hat on. And anyone with a history of aviation disasters should have absolutely flinched at that statement and said, hey, hey, boss, you do realize that this is what they said just before the Challenger blew up. Oh, and when they went faster, better, cheaper, you know, that's this idea, you know, and, and, then, and then when you say that that happened in, in NASA, a government organization, and, um, and now you put that into a, into a private firm and talk here about the intersection of, of, of Boeing, you know, the regulator and Wall Street and, and how that, that tension plays out. There's something in here that I, I, I don't actually know the truth of this, but they basically make the argument that the 737 MAX had heaps of pre-orders. It was going to be a successful program. So it wasn't a question of like success or failure of the project or making enough money. This was purely about already making lots of money and then how much extra can we skim off the top for the shareholders? And so it sort of paints this whole thing as a picture of, this is basically trying to just get as much free money off the top of the organization as possible. And all of that money has to come from somewhere. You know, record profits are not just free money. They've got to be squeezed out of somewhere. And somewhere where they get squeezed out of is reducing the size of your engineering bureaucracy, which is another way of saying your oversight programs, your... Um, extra money for uh, extra slack in the project for getting the extra regulatory activities. So Drew, I think that's not a bad step off point to go into takeaways as well, you know, where those profits come from, because I guess that was one of the takeaways. So if I go down there and then I'll, I'll throw back to you. So, you know, knowing where the profit's coming from. So maybe as safety professionals, you know, because you're saying that profit is borrowing from somewhere. So yeah, there might be record sales, you know, but maybe margins are getting bigger, maybe costs are going down, what's going on. So I think safety professionals can play an interesting role in organizations in, in, you know, going, Oh, we had a record year of profit. We had a record year of production. We've had a record year of customer orders and go, Oh, okay. What does that mean for the risk in our business? You know, where's that, where's that extra profit coming from? Does our organization know where that extra profit's coming from? And is it borrowing from safety in the short term? That'll, that'll actually come back to bite the organization in the long term. Cause you know, Trading off engineering resources in the design of an aircraft doesn't compromise safety at the time that those trade-offs being made. It uh, compromises safety once those aircraft go into operation, long after the quarterly results have been published. David, there's a phrase they use in IT that I haven't heard used in safety called technical debt. It's basically the amount of extra stuff you've got stacked up from small changes you've made without properly integrating them and rush decisions that you've been made at crunch time. And it goes on to the balance sheet of the organization. You just don't see it. Is all this mess you've accrued for yourself in the future because you haven't done things as smoothly and as cleanly and as sorted out as they could otherwise have been. And it might seem like a profit now, but you're going to pay for it. Yeah, and software developers will tell you, look, the system works, but there's bugs in it. There's testing that we haven't done. And and if we don't actually come back and, like you say, liquidate that technical debt um, and go through and actually check everything and integrate everything and 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 test it all, then it's just going to result in outages down the track. And then we, it's going to be really complex for us to, you know, take the system apart and figure out where the problem is. So I think that's a really good example there. 
Drew of where we sort of like kick something down the road and never actually deal with it. So Drew, do you want to sort of add to the takeaways? Okay, so next takeaway from me is don't romanticize ethics. One of the points that comes through clearly from this paper is that often we get this impression that the most important ethical thing is your brave whistleblower you know, standing up to defend the public against the evil company. And if you've got to that point where you need that person, you're way beyond ethics. Practical ethics gets done on spreadsheets and budgets. It doesn't get do, done through whistleblowing. And so we need to incorporate that sort of ethical thinking into our culture of budgeting and our culture of recruitment and all those other parts of the organization, not just sort of like building in these systems for last ditch defense through whistleblowing. Yeah. And so another takeaway is around safety approvals and knowing, you know, and, and being clear of what our primary task is. So is our primary task a safety assessment or a safety approval? Because when you're inside an organization and your safety assurance team and your and your safety approvals team, if they see their their primary task as safety approval, then they're actually focused on that as their outcome um, and using their engineering ability to make arguments for getting approvals. If they see their task as safety assessment, then that may drive a different narrative, identity, set of activities. So be very wary on the goal that teams see themselves as having, what their primary goal is. David, I think that's particularly important, and this getting into another takeaway. When we're looking across like regulators and contractors, a lot of these approval systems, they're designed as if they're adversarial. That one person is going to be scrutinizing the work of someone else. And the risk is that sort of both halves of that relationship rely on each other and assume that it's, they're sort of like in a joint project to acquire approval. You've, you've set the system up to be adversarial and you're on the side that's supposed to be scrutinizing, then it's your job to scrutinize and to not trust the other people, not to just assume that, you know, their work is good and it's just your job to read through it, check it's okay, check it's in the right format and stamp it. And that includes things like, you know, asking for documents that they haven't given you, asking to look over at systems that they are trying to claim that you don't need to look at. You, the moment someone says, you don't need to see that, the answer should be, I don't know, I just want to see that, I now want to see everything. Yeah, there's a quote that I'll paraphrase that I love when it comes to safety that I actually do when, whenever I'm training safety professionals. It's this quote that if two people always agree, then one of them's unnecessary. Like your job has to actually be to... <laughs> Well, your job actually has to be to constructively challenge others and the regulatory pro process should be around constructive challenge. And I guess it's not relying on others because, you know, there is an argument that, that, that could be made, particularly by senior people in organizations, which is, well, this has been approved by the regulator. So it's safe. It must be safe. And so this idea of if it's approved, it's, it's okay. Um, is a really dangerous kind of assumptions because in pretty every, pretty much every major incident that's taken place in every major hazard industry or safety critical industry has been on a technology or on a site or in relation to an activity that has regulatory approval. And this one is specific to Boeing, David. When the investigation happens, don't let them find emails in your company saying, oh, it must be safe because the regulator approved it. And other emails in your company saying the regulator's an idiot because those don't look good put next to each other. Yes. And so then there's these these rewards, you know, we, we know and we did it, we did an episode not too long ago about should we, you know, reward schemes for safety that was in company research by Diane and Fuzzy and others inside BP and just talk, looked at, you know, rewards and decisions and behaviors and safety. And and look, we know that we know that organizations are accountable to their shareholders. We know that executives are incentivized to maximize the returns for those shareholders. And I guess what we've got to do in our organizations is understand, particularly in these, these high-risk technology engineering firms where actually safety does involve investment of money and does involve investment of time, you know, to check and to test and to verify, you know, lots and lots of, you know, complex activities and, and designs, then that time and cost is going to go cut straight into shareholder profits and, you know, if you're a leader in those types of organizations or a safety professional in those types of organizations, I think you've got to have a very strong focus on basically how how that trade-off's being balanced or how that conflict's being balanced. Yeah, you, you can meet your duties to the shareholders without having to maximize the amount of money that you're giving away in your dividends or your stock price. Um, give them a fair profit and put the rest back into safety. 
And I think, Drew, it was mentioned in in this paper that, you know, in, in Boeing, particularly on, on a previous program where they might have had 20 engineers involved in a certain activity, they now had just one. You know, so so you can actually look if you're a safety professional into your engineering practices and resources over time and just make some inquiries. You know, have we had a change in the number of engineering resources that we've had in the team? Go and talk to some of your engineers and ask them, you know, do you feel like we're, you know, our, our, our engineering practices are getting weaker? In what areas? You know, what are the processes we use to check and to verify and to test, you know, engineering designs? And, you know, you can make inquiries about engineering work as done in the same way that you'd make inquiries in your organization about frontline work as done and see what themes emerge. Yeah, what, what did we used to do that we don't do now? And are you sure we shouldn't still be doing it? So, Drew, the question we asked this week was, should we be happy when our people speak out about safety? Well, certainly the answer in this paper is once we've got to that point, we're already well beyond being happy. So, no, it's, it's, it, it's a sign. You know, if, we, if we need that to happen, then things are bad. Yeah, so it's a good it's a good point. Not not that we shouldn't be happy if someone does catch something out, but our immediate focus should be, you know, what's broken in our organization that we've we've had to rely on this for for maintaining safety. So Drew, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 